0: Good morning. Welcome to Bible Study this morning. So glad to have you here with us in our gym. As is our usual practice, we'll be going over the lessons for the upcoming Sunday. A special welcome to those listening in St. Louis uh, on AM 850, KFUO, and worldwide on KFUO.org. I am Tanner Wade, assistant pastor here at St. Paul's. Uh, Before we begin, I do want to point out we do have handouts over on the gym bleachers. So if someone would like a handout... um, they can go ahead and grab one. Uh, and then just a few, um, kind of little bit of context, especially in the scope of Advent before we dive into the scripture lessons uh, themselves. The third Sunday of Advent, which is the upcoming Sunday, I know it's hard to believe we're already halfway through Advent, technically speaking, um, as today being the second Sunday. But for the third Sunday of Advent, it's known as Gadete Sunday. And each Sunday of Advent has a specific focus. And the third Sunday of Advent, Gaudete Sunday, Sunday, is always a focus on joy. And in fact, you can always know when it's Gaudete Sunday because it's the pink candle. So if you look at our Advent wreath over here for uh, Living Stone, or if you look at the Advent wreath in the sanctuary, uh, that pink candle is the candle that's used for Gaudete Sunday. Uh, it's also why there's uh, a pink color uh, at the top of the... <laughs> the theme of the handouts, pink uh, for today and for t- next week as well. Um, but uh, Gadete Sunday takes its name um, from what was the intruit for the service of the word for the Sunday traditionally. Uh, and Gadete is the first word in Latin, and it means simply rejoice. That's why joy is the focus. So throughout these four lessons, as we uh, go through them, if you want to underline every time it says joy or circle rejoice or whatnot, um, there is joy uh, as a pretty primary theme throughout these lessons. In fact, that's why, for example, 1 Thessalonians uh, is even the epistle reading for the Sundays, because it starts with the words, uh, rejoice always. So, and let's start there. We'll start, we'll start on the back page, if you have your handout. We'll start with those two, the epistle reading and the gospel reading. So the epistle reading for Godete Sunday, for the third Sunday of Advent, is First Thessalonians 5:16 through 24. And verse 16 right away, you have why it's included for this week. It starts with, "Rejoice always." And uh, one of the things you may notice as we go through this lesson of First Thessalonians chapter five is that while uh, in the Greek, these are kind of a state of a set of commands, It's not a command in the ordinary sense of do this, but it's more a descriptive statement of what it looks like to live a Christian life. These are the sort of regular things that Christians ought to be doing. And especially as we wait for the advent of Christ's second coming, as those who live um, post the incarnation of Jesus, uh, post his ascension, who await for him to come quickly, to come back. um, And we're in that advent Uh, This is a descriptive kind of set of statements that Paul gives the church in Thessalonica for how the ordinary Christian life ought to look. So we start in verse 16, uh, rejoice always. And then you can notice in verse 17 right away, another quick kind of command, pray without ceasing. Now, in one sense, if you took this entirely literally, um, you have kind of two options. One would be, if you hear prayer without ceasing, you, may, you can think of prayer perhaps you, at first as like, okay, is that just, you know, I'm always thinking of God, or there's something like that. Or two, you would recognize that if we too truly pray without ceasing in the sense of bringing our request to God, and I mean it without ceasing, uh, we would get nothing done, <laughs> right? Um, that would be the reality. And so what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Uh, more than just it being nonstop, I think Paul is really trying to pull out here that uh, we should be regularly in prayer. That prayer is a regular part of the Christian life, a daily part of the Christian life. And not just a once-a-day thing. It is a uh, part of our discipline as Christians over and over and over. We're given the great gift to bring our request, bring our concerns to God, and he hears them. And that, I think, is something that we can, on one hand, take for granted. Right? We, we, we probably have all um, gone through things like even the Lord's Prayer during a church service, and it kind of goes on autopilot. Our brains may even turn to kind of autopilot because this is something we've heard so many times. But to think that when we bring our prayers to God, He hears them, and that it's, we're called to make prayer a regular, a consistent part of our daily lives— um, it's an important reminder because I think all of us, I, I will, myself included, uh, we can sometimes in the busyness of life forget uh, that we got to pray regularly. we got to pray uh, consistently. We can sometimes think, you know, especially when a big problem occurs or something happens that we you know, we think we need to solve right away, we can instantly go into fix-it mode instead of lift-it-up-to-God mode. And so Paul's trying to remind the church in Thessalonica that you are to pray regularly. It's supposed to be um, a a constant, and it's something you don't need to be afraid of, or you don't need to reserve for just a one portion of the day, but that you can be uh, consistent and constant in prayer in your daily life. Uh, Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In some cases, uh, this answers the age-old question that every... uh, teenager, ask their parents, why? Right? So Paul gives these instructions to the church in Thessalonica, and I'm sure there probably are some of those in that church who would probably say, well, why? Why is it that we do these things so consistently, so regularly? And Paul, instead of trying to get into, you know, well, it's beneficial here, and it's beneficial there, which it is, immediately goes to, uh, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So those three things, rejoice always, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And that is still true for us today. Though when we read these words, when we read for you, it's also for us, very truly. Not just for the church in Thessalonica, but for us who sit here or listen uh, to this Bible study this morning. And then verse 19. Do not quench the spirit... In verse 20, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Uh, That word quench was really interesting. It's causing something to cease to function. And so quench isn't a a bad translation, but really when we're thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit, what does it mean to extinguish it or to quench it? It would be to cause it to cease to function in our lives. And again, just as 16 through 18 went together, uh, 19, 20, and 21, as well as 22, all kind of go together uh, as well. Uh, Do not despise prophecies. Now, prophecy was something that um, God did give to the early church, and God does work through. However, you might notice right away what Paul says, even in the first century, immediately after he mentions the word prophecy, test everything. So we are not to say, um, and the church at that time in particular, Paul's message to the church is, if someone says, I have this word from God, don't say, you're a liar. Say Because God has worked through prophets. God has worked uh, throughout history through prophets. And in fact, Paul and those in the first century in particular know the reality of uh, the fulfillment of those prophecies. Because they actually saw Jesus. They walked with Jesus. You know, the disciples talk about in First John, it's what our eyes have seen, our hands have touched, our ears have heard. The fulfillment of the prophecy, the fulfillment of the one God promised to send, they saw. So they knew that God worked in this way. And so when Paul tells them, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, the focus instantly becomes off of, hey, do you think this person is credible, and it becomes instantly: Is this person credible according to God's word? Because what is our test? It should not be: Well, they really spoke eloquently, so that's the only way I know if someone is, you know, speaks the word of God or not. Um, and Paul himself would say in First Corinthian, in, uh, Corinthians, uh, "I did not come to you with fancy speech, right." That it's not that. It's not how handsome the person is. Not how well-liked he is. No, you test it according to God's word. That is the standard by which we examine everything. But test everything, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Here you kind of have a dichotomy. You have on the one hand, holding fast to what is good, and that is literally just grip it tightly, cling to it. And then, on the other hand, to abstain from something evil is to release it. That word abstain is to release it, meaning get it away from you, become distant to it. So you could almost think to it as cling to what is good, run far away from what is evil. Um, and again, why? Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then finally, in verses 23 and 24, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you as faithful, he will surely do it. Uh, it's interesting here. Uh, that we're now may the peace of God or the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. We sometimes uh, in English we use the word may in a couple different senses, and it's the same in Greek. Uh, we can say something may occur if it's a maybe, right? But then often, uh, for example, when we're at a wedding, um, we might say to the new couple. <laughs> May you have a lifetime of happiness and love for one another. We're not saying maybe you have a lifetime. We're saying this is a statement of our will. It's that second type of the, or second use of the word may that Paul is using here. That uh, it is his desire and it is the desire of God that the God of peace will sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know this is the Lutheran response to everything, but you notice who's at work in this statement. It's not us. It's God. That the God of peace himself will sanctify you uh, completely. And that word completely is where we still get the word whole today. In Greek it's holateles. Holateles is literally where we get the word whole uh, even to this day. So the God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely, and may your whole or complete spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And is this up to you? Is this because you're so great or grand? No, it is he who calls you and is faithful. He will surely do it. And so it's a great uh, exhortation, a great encouragement that Paul, even though it takes kind of the form of command, that's why I said it's not the sort of command of like, you know, do this, don't do that. In in one sense it is, but truly it's more of an encouragement. That this is what uh, Christians ought to be reminded of, but also uh, the promise and the joy and the life Christians ought to have. A life of joy, a life of prayer, a life of thanks, uh, not extinguishing or quenching or uh, ceasing to cause the Spirit to function, but rather... Uh, one that tests everything and clings to what's good and flees far away from what's evil. Uh, and God will sanctify us completely. Now, of course, some of you may be thinking of the, the very well-known uh, doctrine of simultaneously saints and sinner. And what does that mean to this? How does Paul say God, uh, the God of peace will sanctify you completely when we know so truly that we are not perfect? We are not perfectly sanctified. So what's the sense that Paul's talking about here? Well, in one sense, he is talking about the work of the Spirit in our lives, which God does work through and continues to work through through his Spirit to sanctify us here on earth. But when is the whole or complete sanctification of our body and soul? I hear it out there. (laughs) Yeah, at at the second coming, at um, the time in which uh, Christ himself will establish the new heavens and the new earth. It's the eschatological sanctification. And so it, it also makes this a very appropriate Advent passage because what are we on the Advent of? Of those who live uh, post the first incarnation, or the incarnation I should say, of Jesus, what are we on the Advent of? Well, of his second coming. So that is the epistle reading for next Sunday from First Thessalonians uh, chapter five. Are there any questions on that before we go ahead and look at the Gospel of John? Any comments? No? Okay. All right, so the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And if you were at the 8 o'clock service this morning, and then you read chapter 1, or the reading for this upcoming week from John, you may say, wow, this sure seems familiar. Because the uh, first chapter of Mark that was read as the gospel lesson for today, the second Advent or second Sunday of Advent, uh, that gospel reading talked about John the Baptist too, and even talked about uh, making the way of the Lord straight. Well, you get a lot of that in Advent. You get a lot of, the, of John the Baptist and preparing the way of the Lord. Why? Well, what is Advent? It's a preparation of a, one, as a church, we celebrate, like I said, the incarnation of Christ, but two. Um, of his second coming, that we too are in a state of preparation to this day, that we, his church, are called um, not to just sit idly by. In fact, going back to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, that was their big issue. People quit their jobs and stopped working uh, and kind of said, well, God's coming, so what do I need to do? And so you get a lot of preparation uh, talk, a lot of of talk of preparation, Christ coming again. And it's kind of funny how the church year works with it ending, and there's a lot of eschatological talk. And then it starts in Advent again, and there's a lot of eschatological talk. That is end times or um, Christ's second coming sort of uh, verses and pericopes. And so, again, um, this will be very similar to what is and was uh, the gospel lesson for today. So John 1, 6 through 8 There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This kind of answers the question. John immediately answers the question. What was the purpose of John the Baptist? What did he come to do? He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But he was not the light. And as we'll see in the questions that are posed um, to John uh, later on in the pericope, that's their first question. Are you the Christ? And so right away in the Gospel of John, we read of John the Baptist. There's a lot of Johns here in the next, about the next 50 minutes. We'll, we'll say John about 150 times. But um, John the Baptist is not the Christ. He is not the light, but he is the one who came to bear witness about the light, that all might believe in Him. Now, you may think with John one, it's interesting that we go six to eight, and then nineteen through twenty-eight. Uh, why not just start at John one, similar to how we started in Mark one, and why not include verses what, it, what would that be nine through eighteen? Does anyone want to guess as to why we, particularly, um, this close to uh, Christmas, skip those verses? So on Christmas Day, that's the gospel reading. It's John 1, 1 through 5, and then 9 through uh, 18. So one of, the, one of the reasons is, on a practical sense, um, again, even though there is a lot of repetition, because that is the Christmas Day gospel reading, uh, for Advent 3, they focus specifically on just that preparation aspect, the, the John the Baptist section of John chapter 1. So the testimony of John the Baptist, starting at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. This is the witness of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, perhaps your first reaction is, well, that seems to be a very forward question to ask somebody. (laughs) Did they go around all the time just doing this? You know, if someone was a great teacher or follower, did they go around asking him, hey, are you the Messiah? Um, In one sense, no. John was, uh, one thing he was doing is what will come out, baptizing. So John was a little bit different than what they'd seen before. This was a little bit different. But in another sense, the reason they went straight to, are you the Christ, is there is a great messianic expectation at this time. Uh, not only in Jewish culture, but even in the Roman world, uh, there were those who were not Christians who believed that there was some sort of uh, Messiah. And of course, uh, the emperors of Rome, they themselves were deified, considered gods. And so at this time, it is not unusual for there to be just this in, your back, in the back of your mind, this idea of the messianic expectation. And in particular, in Jerusalem, where they're enslaved and imprisoned, Oh, and when I say enslaved and imprisoned, I mean they're no longer self-governing. The Roman Empire is the ultimate civil authority in Israel at this time. That's why the people have to bring Jesus to Pilate. And once he releases him to the people, then they can put Jesus on trial and execute him. That uh, the people of God at this time are not autonomous. And so they are in expectation, anticipation of the fulfillment of the messianic, messianic, uh, promise. And you can see why when, um, they're in the situation they are in Rome, why so quickly and so often they go to a worldly, a temporal kingdom. Because what was the thing on the forefront of their minds on a day-to-day basis? It was the fact that the Roman empire, uh, they had the ultimate authority over Israel. And this, uh, as God's people They believed uh, in his, well, I should say some of them, there are obviously those that did not, believed in God's promise. But in that restoration of Israel, they are thinking very quickly, well, it's going to be a temporal thing. We are going to kick the Romans out, and we are going to take Israel back. So you have this heightened expectation um, for the Messiah. Not unlike us, by the time it gets about December 20th, 21st, when we just can't wait for Christmas Day and Christmas Eve. In verse 21, and they ask him, "What then are you, Elijah?" Again, at first glance, this may seem like kind of a strange question. Why did they go first to the Christ and then second to Elijah? Because of his appearance, yes, uh, but also Malachi. In one of the, la- the second to last, the second-to-last verse of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi says that uh, El- Elijah will come. Again, Now, what is meant by that? And you'll see that what's John's response here? Are you Elijah? No. So if you go to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, we read uh, the prophet Malachi say, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is why they're thinking, okay, so is this Elijah reincarnate? And John answers, no, because he is not Elijah reincarnate. But in the Gospel of Mark, you may recall, the disciples asked Jesus about John the Baptist, whether he is the Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi, and Jesus says, yes. Now, these aren't contradictory statements. These are not contradictory statements. They're two distinct questions. Here, when the Jews come to him and ask him, are you Elijah? They're asking very literally, are you Elijah? reincarnate. Are you that prophet from of old? When the disciples asked Jesus, they ask in the context of, and which is how Malachi uses um, the prophecy, in the context of one who would prepare the way of the Lord. In fact, it was so important for the disciples to make sure that people understood it was John the Baptist was the one who would prepare the way of the Lord who would cry out in the wilderness, um, that all four Gospels include that very statement. Not all four Gospels have um, all the details about John the Baptist that the others do, but all four Gospels have, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That is the connection to Malachi or as I had one seminary professor always tell me, Malachi, he was the Italian prophet. But Malachi, um, when he says that an Elijah is coming, you're absolutely right that one of the things that made John um, that type, a typecast of Elijah is the fact that his appearance was as Elijah. That he wore uh, a clothes or a robe of animal skin, he even uh, honey or locusts, and this is something that Elijah did as well. And so you have this sort of yes and no question. Is John the Baptist Elijah? In the sense that Malachi is talking about, yes. But then you can ask the question again, is John the Baptist Elijah? Well, in the sense, is John the Baptist the same guy who's with Jesus at the transfiguration that Peter uh, and and the disciples see? No. And so you have this kind of... Um, and you can see why they, they had a little bit of confusion then. The disciples, when they asked Jesus later on in the Gospel of Mark, wait, is he, the, is he the Elijah? Because he said no, but I think maybe we were talking about two different things, and that's where Jesus can answer, yes, he was the one who prepared the way for me. All right, continuing, uh, he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, that is John the Baptist answered, No. So they said to him, well, then, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And that's a quote from Isaiah 40, uh, verse 3, which, again, uh, for this Sunday, should be very familiar. Uh, If you have not been to church, uh, pay attention to the Old Testament reading. (laughs) Um, but also even in some of our Advent hymns. Uh, You know, we have the Comfort, Comfort, Ye My People today, and it's a wonderful Advent hymn, a wonderful reminder of what God uh, has promised and what He does for His people. Verse 24, uh, in brackets, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They ask Him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. Again, this is a statement that makes it to all four Gospels. Why? The Gospel writers wanted there to be clarity here. Who is John the Baptist talking about? It's Jesus. And so, in all four Gospels, you have again, I baptize with water, um, but among you stands one you do not know, and even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, I said uh, each passage would have some sort of joy theme to it. Yet, you notice here, there's not not the specific word joy. What is the joy of this Gospel reading? Yeah, that we're on the advent of our King. That the Messiah is coming. That the light is coming. That is John the Baptist's cry. That these things the prophets of of old told you, this is happening now. So rejoice. And of course, what is the response that those questioning John have. Oh, this, this doesn't seem right. No. And the great tragedy is, of course, they're looking for this uh, temporal royalty, this temporal king to come. And they are in their mind, their greatest joy would be to kick the Roman Empire out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and take back for themselves the land God promised them. And yet, of course, the greater joy is that God's uh, plan for us, his life for us, through his son, Jesus Christ, the light of the world would be that he would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, in the section of John that is not um, included for next week's gospel reading, in the section that's included for Christmas Day. That's what John says as Jesus comes towards him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, in John, it's important to remember, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of a strange, at first glance, a strange choice for Christmas Day, because for those of you who have your Bibles open, if you look at John, what's not mentioned in the Gospel of John? His birth, right? Right? Gospel of John starts in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, or the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. But why uh, is the Gospel of John so impactful, especially on Christmas Day, is that we remember that God came into our world, incarnate in the flesh. And John's primary thing in chapter one is to be very clear that. Jesus is the Son of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, in the flesh, and he's here. So can we rejoice? And of course, (laughs) for us, joyfully on Christmas Day, we say, yes, joy to the world, right? Uh, And yet, sadly, uh, in the first century, so many people who knew the promises of God, who knew the prophets, who knew the words God had spoken through his prophets rejected that joy uh, that was freely given to them. All right. Any questions on the Gospel of John? Chapter 1. I mean, you could ask any question on the Gospel of John, but maybe to keep it simpler. (laughs) All right. Well, then let's move on to the front page. We'll go to the Psalm and then the Old Testament reading. Uh, And the Psalm is Psalm 126, which... Uh, should be familiar if you're here on Wednesday for our midweek service. It was our responsive psalm uh, for the midweek. And it's a song of a sense. And the title you may notice some Bibles may have is uh, Restore Our Fortunes, O Lord. Psalm 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It's interesting that word dream has a kind of particular context, uh, a particular sense of dreamlike like. Um, when you were young, in in the sense that, kind of looking back in the good old days, you could say, the the implication here is these are dreams of joy, dreams, you know, not misguided by uh, an (laughs) ill-spent youth or the mistakes of your past, but rather dreams uh, that are uh, almost limitless. And we can all remember what it's like, in some ways, to be a child, or even in some cases still have some of those dreams ourselves, where there are things that do um, bring us such great joy. But so the implication when it says we are like those who dream, it's dreaming happily, dreaming joyfully. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. That's what it was like back then in the good old days. You know, harking back to that word, those, or the phrase, like those who dream. This is the depiction of what it was like back then when we were like those who dreamt. When they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Uh, I'm curious who you think uh, the referent is, at least when it says, they said among the nations. Can you think of a a passage or a, a time in the Old Testament where perhaps other nations came up to Israel and have said, the Lord did great things for you. Kind of an intersection between our two Bible studies, because our foundations class is studying the book of Joshua right now. And so in our preparation for that, there are several sections of Joshua where countries actually come to Joshua, come to the Israelites and say, we've heard about how magnificent your Lord is. Can we make a treaty with you? Because <laughs> we aren't going to stand it. We don't, we don't have a chance. Um. And so that's one of those things that I at least thought of right away is, you know, of old there were those nations and this people, the Israelites had a history of a people where even other nations recognized the awesomeness, the mightiness, the power of almighty God. Yes. 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 And so um, you've got this sense, this longing, you can kind of sense. And this is why it's so appropriate for Advent, because, of course, we are longing. Come thou long-expected Jesus, set your people free. We are longing for that joy of Christmas Day. And the people in the Old Testament were longing for the fulfillment of that messianic promise. And so you can think of it as you know, someone looking back and longing both for what is to come, but based on the fortunes and the successes of what had occurred in their nation's history when God had done great things for them. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Uh, Now, Negev, that could be several areas. It can mean southern Egypt. It can just mean the southern area as well of Palestine. Um, So don't make a specific geographic reference to it in this case. Um, But the idea is just um, like those places down south. Um, Now, you don't want to read too much into it, but why might they say those like streams of the south? Well, one of the places God did great things for his people was bringing them up out of Egypt. So whether it's southern Egypt or whether it's just southern like Palestine, as the Israelites marched through the promised land um, or march to the promised land, I should say. Again, going back, if you want to look at the book of Joshua, it's a great history of what that looked like and what happened. Um, as they do that, they're coming from the south. So again, this whole idea of going almost, you have all these little clues of uh, those times of yesteryear that we keep looking, uh, that there's a longing for what's going to come because it's going to be like it used to be and even greater. In verse 5, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, Shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's interesting. These again, these two verses go together, and six is almost an a- extrapolation or an expansion of what is said in verse five. So, in verse five, those who sow in tears—you um, can understand that is—that's where they are not now. They're they're like one who sows in tears. Uh, if someone was sowing and they were in tears, what happened? For those, I mean, I don't know if anyone grew up on a farm, but what happens if you plant and, and nothing grows? You're in trouble, right? Um, so why might someone sow in tears? Well, nothing's growing. Nothing seems to be sprouting. That's where they are now. But what will they be? They shall reap with shouts of joy. So you have the idea of here's where we're at now. Here's where we're going to be. And they use this farming um, or planting or agricultural metaphor, if you want to say. Um, And then uh, then it's expanded in verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That he went out, he bore the burden of Getting down and planting. And there were no big John Deere, big long line, you know, combines that can go down and do acres at a time, right? How did you plant in those days? There's a lot of hand labor, hard work. So he who bore that burden will come back with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Bringing that growth, bringing the, the fortune, bringing the good news that what had been planted has now grown. What was promised and expected and hoped to come has now arrived. And of course, what's the other reality in these days, uh, agriculturally, um, not only uh, was it just a, a large uh, waste of time if you, if you didn't get your grain to grow. What's the other reality uh, if you plant and nothing grows? Well, not only bankrupt, but worse than that, you might die. You might literally die of hunger. Um, there were no schnucks, and if schnucks was out, you go to Deerberg's, right? Um, I've, been said, I've been told I say that wrong still. It's supposed to be schnucks. Is that right? Anyway. It'll be schnucks for a while, and then I'll maybe I'll... Right? Um, but there, there is no alternative. That this is a matter of life and death. We may see it as a simple agricultural metaphor, but what happens when you sow and nothing grows? Well, you go hungry. And... Uh, quite frankly, the reality is not just you, but your family. And so there's a real seriousness to what's being said here, to sow with tears, to sow sow without being able to grow is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing. It still is, but in those days especially, like I said, there was no backup plan. (laughs) All right. So that is Psalm 126. We've got about 15 minutes for the Old Testament reading from Isaiah 61. But any questions on Psalm 126? Yes. I do not believe we have. Let me double check. I didn't have it written down, which makes me think there's. I I didn't write yes or no. So no, we do not have. Um, we do not have a dating or a particular author. So I just checked, and again. What does that mean? Well, one, um, there are a lot of Psalms that we don't know the exact time of. um, And there's a lot of Psalms we don't know the exact author of either. Um, But what we can gather is usually the contextual clue. So like, think about when we have a Psalm of David, and there's quite a few of these where David talks about the person I trusted betrayed me. Well, we don't know the exact time in his life, but there's some clues we can take from it. Probably either Saul Or one of the other times when he was king, even, that he uh, had people rise against him, that he considered advisors or even um, family of his. Likewise, with Psalm 126, though we don't have an author, when might someone have written this psalm? Probably not after the fall of Jericho, right? It's probably not right after um, God immediately had delivered for his people. And... That's where, I mean, not just the restoration language in the fortunes of Zion, um, but even how they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them, and the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Again, you don't want to create a particular geographic location, but the idea there is that this is what God had done for our people. So this is probably, you know... Either a a time after some sort of uh, defeat in battle, or even uh, post um, the split of the kingdom. Again, you don't want to. You can't. It's tough because we would we would all love an exact answer. Like this is from 651 BC, and here's who wrote it, and here was the context, and here is. But you can take some contextual clues to. Um, I would say, make educated assumptions, but no matter what those assumptions are, they should never be set in stone because we just don 't have that answer <laughs> set in stone yep yeah. well that 's a good question. Would the Negev be considered wilderness or desert um, yeah that 's a that 's a great point that in in the desert um, those streams are in are uh, what you need for survival, that those desert, desert streams mean, one, you're going to have water, but usually things grow in a desert, right? Usually there's a very thin patch of green, and it follows whatever river in the area um, or whatever stream is in the area because that's where the water is. So that's a great point, that the streams uh, could be an indication of the providence God's had for his people, even in the midst of a desert or a wilderness. Yeah. All right. Old Testament reading from Isaiah, chapter 61. Uh, And again, uh, I have the little section there in smaller italicized uh, words. That is um, the part of the pericope that is uh, omitted for the technical lectionary reading for next week. But because it still flows pretty consistently, um, and it's not going to be on Christmas Day, (laughs) I figured I'd include it just so we could read it as well. Um, But if you get to church next week and you go, hey, there's not that... Those uh, four verses, um, that's because it is omitted for the sake of the pericope. Isaiah 61, uh, 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Now, when I read that there, um, does any other point of the Bible, does this remind you of any other instance, any other readings that you can think of um, any other pericopes from the New Testament? Yes, it is what Jesus read in the synagogue, specifically at Nazareth. So right after the temptation of Jesus in uh, Luke 4, Jesus begins his ministry. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, Now, anyone remember from that section of Luke, what does Jesus say when he rolls that scroll back up? Exactly. He says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So when we read this in Isaiah... Um, that section of of Luke 4 should uh, really be at the forefront of our minds, that there is no uh, doubt (laughs) as to what this prophecy is talking about. Because Jesus himself says, this has been fulfilled. And in fact, um, even perhaps more remarkable for those in Nazareth, what is their reaction to hearing that? They try to stone him. They pick up stones and drive him out of town. that Jesus gets rejected in his hometown. That's why at the seminary they always say, be careful going back to your home congregation, because look what happened when Jesus tried it. So if Jesus can't even do it... Uh, <laughs> all right, no, but it's... Uh, he uh, In his reading, this scripture has been fulfilled. So as we read this section of Isaiah, that is really should be at the forefront of our minds, that this, uh, these words from Isaiah are fulfilled in Christ. So to uh, bring good news to the poor, bind the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty, the opening of prison to the bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, um, or the Lord's favorable year is perhaps even a better um, translation there. What do those people have in common? The poor, the brokenhearted, the imprisoned, the captive, they are helpless. Uh, And not only are they helpless, but they're in need of help. So not only can they not help themselves, but their current situation is not just net neutral. (laughs) It's a bad spot to be in. They are in desperate need of assistance, and they can't do anything to assist themselves. And what's so beautiful about what Jesus proclaims here is, of course, we think of our own lives um, and how true that same concept is for us. That though we may be in the land, of the land of the free, we know that we are still truly captive to our sin. Sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. That while um, we may experience great love, we still do in our sin have moments of great brokenness. And that ultimately, because of that sin, our relationship with God is destroyed, and we are helpless to bring it back. And yet... Christ came to proclaim reconciliation. Uh, But continuing into Isaiah, that's a little bit too much on Luke probably, but uh, continuing to Isaiah, verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, there's some interesting metaphors there, right? Uh, Maybe some that don't seem super common to us. Uh, For example, what's so great about having a beautiful headdress? Well, if we think of what was referenced just before. Bruce, did you want? Gets attention, yes. When might one don such an elegant yes for a wedding? So you have the contrasting, again, you have liberty to the captives, but then it continues even through verse 3 that those who mourn, Will be given a beautiful headdress as the joy of one about to get married. That um, there will be an oil of gladness instead of mourning. That the, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. Now, that's kind of a strange metaphor, but is there another, is there a particular tree that we think of, especially in Isaiah, that is mentioned multiple times, that was known for its uh, majesty? It's from a particular country, too. It talks about the, the cedars of Lebanon. And so, again, you have that same idea here that this is not just a normal oak tree, but in some ways you could think of this as, you know, you'll be like a sequoia. Now, obviously, they didn't know what a sequoia was. <laughs> but you think, if you've ever seen the sequoia trees or been to Sequoia National Forest, I mean, when they are planted, it is a massive endeavor. These are things that are cemented, into the ground, um, and so that's sort of, think of, you know, a big tree, not just your tree in your front yard, but really one of those wide, 10-foot wide, 20-foot wide trunk, even wider trees, and that's what's the, kind of the imagery that's trying to be brought about here, that you would be called an oak of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that if the Lord plants you, if he's your root, you're not going to fail, that he may be glorified. And then verses 4 through 7, which we'll just read for the interest of time, but this again is what is omitted from the reading for next week. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise their, the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and uh, vine dressers. But you shall be called the priest of the Lord, and they shall speak of you as the ministers of God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in the, their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now, I included that because, again, what is Day Sunday? What's the focus? Joy. And so, though it's missing uh, that little Verse 7 is missing from the uh, technical pericope. That's still in the mind of this whole section, that you will be established in a spirit and in a place of everlasting joy because of the Lord. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them the recompense, and I will make them an, an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and the descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who seek me shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring of, that the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. And I really love what comes next, because especially when we think um, of something we have here at St. Paul's with our baptismal font and this imagery. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. If you ever get a chance, in, um, and you haven't done so lately, look at our baptismal font. And you'll notice there's several images on it, but one of them is a robe. And it's such a great image in my uh, mind. I always ask our confirmation students, so why a robe? And you get some really, really funny answers sometimes. Um, But the reminder is in that uh, robe that we are clothed in God's righteousness, not of our own righteous self-doing, but in God's righteousness, that he has clothed me with garments of salvation that he has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." Remember at the start where I talked about what's the why are the captives and the poor and the brokenhearted hearted mentioned um, because they are in need of help and they're helpless. Think of the reversal of fortunes that it has occurred in these 11. Um, these 11 verses that from the poor, they should be like a bridegroom who decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress or a bride that adorns herself with jewels that instead of being captive, you would have a garment of salvation. And as we think about what uh, is so special, not only about Adam, but of Christmas, this is a great section to remind us um, just how special it is that God would send his son to the earth. That he would come as a uh, baby boy, but grow and live the perfect life that we could never live. So that he could proclaim these very things to us. That very truly God was thinking of us when he gave the, the prophet Isaiah these words. And sometimes we can forget that. We think, oh yeah, these were the promises made to God's people long ago. No, this is still the promise that God made to you. And we have the great joy of knowing that in Jesus, this has been fulfilled. So those are the four readings or the four assigned lectionary readings for uh, Gaudete Sunday and Series B of the three-year lectionary. Uh, Were there any questions on Isaiah 61 before we close with prayer? And again, I am going to ask if you could grab a wipe from the uh, back tray there and just wipe where you sat um, before Living Stone. I would greatly appreciate it. But uh, any, any questions about any of the readings before we close our study today? All right, well, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we're so grateful to be able to spend time in your word. So grateful to be in the Advent. Uh, of your second coming, Lord. We know that uh, you have done great things for us in Jesus, and that as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, let us never forget um, the great sacrifice, but also the great joy that comes to us in our Savior's birth. We pray that you would continue to bless all those working in the medical community who have worked so hard to keep us safe, and that in all that we would do, it would be to the glory of your holy name. And it's in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.